people that succeed in this business are people that have been rejected a thousand times. There's no one who is at the top of Hollywood who hasn't been rejected, you know, countless times more than they've been accepted. What is going on, futurists? This is Michael Zakan, founder and CEO of Our Future, the go-to business podcast and media brand for Gen Z producing the best, most exciting, most electric interview content on this planet Earth for the next generation of you and leaders and entrepreneurs of the future. I'm so pumped to be bringing you a Friday episode to snack on before the weekend. It's not just any episode because this episode you're about to hear is with my guest, John Glickman. Yes, John Glickman is returning to the podcast after first appearing on Our Future in episode number 35. John is one of the most powerful men in Hollywood, no cap, a true legend in the entertainment world. This is a red carpet affair. You guys better roll it out for them. John is the former president of MGM, arguably one of the most legendary film studios in the world, you know, the Roaring Lion. And he was responsible for turning that business around with record-breaking hits like Creed, you know, Michael B. Jordan going against the punching bags, Skyfall, Spectre, two of the most highest-grossing Bond films. And he also had credit on working on the new one, No Time to Die, which is yet to come out. But he is now the founder and CEO of his own company, and it's called Glickmania. Glickmania is a next-gen incubator focused on established and emerging storytellers across all platforms. So John is running a company that is producing and having a hand in different kinds of content like franchise films, television, music, podcasts, comics, and new media. And that includes the new biopic with Aretha Franklin, which is super exciting in order to make... So what they are doing is creating interesting content that is forming a library of IP that John can then produce. It's so interesting how he's looking at content as ip you got to hear his insights about his role in the media industry with this podcast you've got to listen you have to listen you're going to love it you're going to want to share this episode with your friends it's so exciting he talks about how he got his first film internship in an elevator when he found saw a famous director going up the elevator and he talks about how young people can position themselves to break into the industry and honestly just like what it's like to be a hollywood producer because there's so much mystery as to what that job is and it's so exciting and interesting he works with celebrities he's, a, he's an absolute legend so uh one note this interview took place live in a few weeks ago to an audience of college kids at the michigan entrepreneur conference so uh it did record live so please enjoy this conversation i have with john glickman hello john Hi, how art thou <laughs> doing pretty well how about yourself good good you've been you've been pretty busy since uh since we last spoke Yes. So have you. Well, uh, you know. Still in the basement, though. Yeah. Well, basement, more like childhood bedroom. It's above ground. Uh, I wouldn't, I would, I'd be white as a sheet if I was uh, in, a, in a basement. I, I try to get at least, you know, outside a little bit. I know you're in LA. You, you got the sunshine and you're in. Uh, Not really today, but usually. Do you have a, do you have an office in Hollywood? Is that where your, your spot is? Yeah. Yes, I am. I mean, I can't show you the Hollywood sign from where I'm at right now, but a pretty decent view of Hollywood from here. That's awesome. Well, you have some kind of picture. It's like the apocalypse now. It's not the Hollywood you read about in the magazines. It's pretty skeezy outside. Yeah, for sure. So uh, Jason was just talking about fear of rejection. I want to start this off with a, a crazy story. So you got your first major internship by running into an elevator with a famous director and you proved yourself in that elevator pitch. Um, 
you know, how did you work up the confidence to go in and make it such a bold, do something like that to get your dream opportunity? Um, well, first of all, it was a studio executive who had turned into a producer, uh, kind of a producer financier whose name was Joe Roth. He had directed movies, but nothing you guys would have seen unless if you've seen Revenge of the Nerds Part 2. But um, he's one of the few people who was a filmmaker, a director, and a uh, studio head. There's been two in the entire history of the business, and he's one of the two. Um, but um, uh, I was at film school, and I had already been rejected because at USC Stark Producing Program, which is where I went, I graduated from Michigan. I took a year off and worked at HBO, and I had the worst job in the world. I answered the complaint line. And then I, to get my mind off of it, I applied to this film program for producing at USC. And they promised you an internship at the end of the first year for the summer. And, but you had to apply for it. And every single uh, place that I applied ended up rejecting me. And so there weren't that many left, but the internship everybody wanted was for Joe Roth, who had just left 20th Century Fox, and he had made movies there like Home Alone and uh, the second Die Hard film, but a lot of great movies, My Cousin Vinny. And he was a cool young guy who had also directed movies. And that was the internship everybody wanted. And I had already been rejected by so many. And I also had done a lot of research about him particularly, but about all the people that I was interviewing with and about a lot of the players in Hollywood at the time. And this is before Google. This is before, you know, you could look it up on your iPhone when you're in line, you know, checking out a drugstore. It was, you had to go to a library and do the research and read newspaper clippings and all of that. But um, I did, and that's, that is, so I was prepared when I talked to him, which I think was a very important thing, is that I knew when I had a moment with him, if I had a moment with him, I would be able to know what he was interested in and what kind of person he was and sort of get a feel. And just from reading about him, I kind of felt like, okay, this is the type of person I want to be. So when I was going to a marketing class, he happened to be the guest lecturer that day. And I was walking in with a couple of my friends and I saw him walking into an elevator and I literally got away from my friends and bolted into the elevator to have a moment with them. And it was more out of desperation of, I didn't have an internship yet. And I knew a lot about him and I felt you know comfortable about um, having enough detail and background about him if I had a conversation. And literally in those like six floors up, I, there was a witness in the elevator to this happening, who's a guy named John August who went and wrote a lot of great movies. He wrote the movie Big Fish and a lot of movies with Tim Burton. Um, he wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory for him. But anyway, he saw this happening and he said it was the most psychotic thing in his life. But basically in the six floors that I went up, I pitched myself to be his intern. And then the next morning, I said a couple of things in the marketing class. So the next morning, I got a phone call at like 8 a.m. I was still sleeping, but from his assistant saying, Joe wants you to be his intern. And so that's basically what happened. I, I don't like being rejected. I really don't. But I kind of have a, um, not an impervience to it, but I, 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 I like putting myself in the position where I might be rejected. It's just a flaw. It's, a, it's, it's part of my makeup and my personality. So um, I, I, I'm not afraid of somebody saying no. 
as I said, I don't like it, but um, I think that's a critical thing to have in this industry, at least in the movie business. Nobody forces you to work in the movie, TV, entertainment business. You're coming here because you want to. Everybody here is here because they want to. And so there's only so much opportunity for a certain amount of people. And it is uh, a lot of it's arbitrary. It's not completely merit based. A lot of it's timing and luck. So if you're not willing to be rejected, you're not going to put yourself in a situation to have success. And that's just the way it is. And the people that succeed in this business are people that have been rejected a thousand times. There's no one who is at the top of Hollywood in any in any tier, acting, directing, producing, studio executive, anything who hasn't been rejected you know, countless times more than they've been accepted. And while you were a student at Michigan, was being a film director, you know, or producer top of mind for you? Did you see it for yourself? Um, I didn't until, I, I love the movie business and I grew up in an era where um, the beta, uh, Betamax and VHS tapes were available. Now it's crazy for you guys. You can see any movie just by touching a button. But in the, my days, it was the first time that you could actually see a movie, rent it, watch it several times over the weekend, kind of choose the movies to a certain extent that you wanted to watch. And so I grew up loving movies. And, um, and I kind of, you know, for somehow or another, I became aware of um, the business of Hollywood. In fact, at Michigan, they used to get the weekly variety trade magazine, which would cover the movie business and box office grocers. And I used to go to the ugly, I don't know if it's, the ugly's not there anymore, I don't think, but the undergraduate library and read um, art, the, the weekly variety every week. Um, and and it, so it, it, there was something obviously bringing me to it, but really the moment that I felt like, hey, I could maybe do this is, um, a guy named Bob Shea, who went to the University of Michigan, and in fact is a big donor to the film school and the film program spoke, he had made the movie Nightmare on Elm Street and they showed the movie and uh, he talked afterwards. And that was a big moment for me to say, okay, this guy went to Michigan. This was his pathway to getting into the film business. It seemed pretty, uh, I don't wanna say glamorous, but exciting. And so I think from that moment, I sort of was like, maybe this is something for me to do for a life. Yeah, I mean, what's crazy to me is you were president. So the guy who gave you the internship, you were president of his company four years out. Well, not immediately. But four but yeah, years out. Um, so what did you yeah, do? So, like, did you just work your, like, like, did you just like grind like a, like a madman? Like, yeah. how does that work? Like, what do people, like, yeah. how, how much do you think of, of it was your natural proclivity for, movies and TV and how much was like your hard work? Like what percentage difference? I think for, first of all, it wasn't really, I mean, I loved it. So as much as I worked on it, I wasn't um, doing something like, uh, to, you know, taking a physics class or something I would hate to be taken. I mean, I truly loved and absorbed everything. I think it was based on um, two things. Number one, I was there and I was incredibly aggressive and the company has started. So having that energy for um, Joe was valuable because he was starting a business and he had a couple of veterans that were working with him, but they weren't necessarily the insane, uh, you know, madmen that I was willing to think of anything or pitch any idea or do anything at any time. That's a good energy to have at the beginning. And then secondly, I think what it was is I was, like him. And I was lucky 
that we shared um, similar interests. And uh, I understood the way he saw the film business. And so he ended up being a great mentor of mine throughout my whole career. And have somebody who is guiding you, I think this is obviously in any business, is an incredibly important uh, you know, find for yourself early in your career. And he was a critical mentor for me at that time. Yeah, that's uh, unbelievable. So why don't we fast forward here? Um, you did work on the Rush Hour, which uh, a lot of us have seen. And, you know, it's, it's uh, certainly new enough that we were, we were born when it was created. So um, definitely a, a fan favorite. Um, but let's let's move forward to... I don't think that's true, by the way. I think some of you guys weren't born when it was created. But that's, 2000, that's, 2000, that's makes me feel terrible about myself. But thank you for making me 2000, feel like 2003? The first rush hour was made in 1998. Wow, I'm so offbeat. Wow. Um, okay, so it was before I was born. Okay. Um, anyhow, what did like, what was it like to have MGM like ask you to be the president? Like, was it a phone call? Was it a meeting? Like, when did you realize that you were going to become the president of movies for MGM? It wasn't. It was. It wasn't as dramatic as that. What happened is, is that MGM was going under bankruptcy. And there was a lot of talk about it being sold. Um, a, a private equity firm had bought the debt, or a lot of people, but one specific private equity firm owned a lot of the debt. And they were looking to you know, make a transaction, and, um, but they weren't getting the numbers that they wanted. And so they ended up saying, okay, let's find somebody to restructure the company after their bankruptcy. And MGM, which is an incredible, you know, the most storied studio was the, 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 you know, the dominant studio for at least 30 years. In the last 40 years had gone undergone huge turmoil and been taken, I mean, Kirk Kerkorian had bought and sold the studio three times. So lots of drama and it really was a shadow of itself. And so I went to work at a film financing company called Spyglass that produced and financed movies. And like The Sixth Sense we did and Bruce Almighty and Shanghai Noon and a bunch of movies. And one of the, um, and so we went to pitch ourselves to restructure MGM, not just me. Me is the production head of the studio, but Gary Barber, who was the chairman of Spyglass and who was a financier by trade. Um, and they chose us to run the studio. So that's basically what happened. There were a lot of other people who tried. The director, Ridley Scott, actually came in with a film producer to take over, but they went with our approach. So it was almost like private equity. It was almost like bringing an outside CEO to like run it. That is so- Exactly what it was. So, so, I mean, so it wasn't like that. That's what it was. So you, did you always have the confidence? Okay, so you you completely turned around MGM. Like not only under your tenure did, was there a $2 billion movie um, that broke a ton of records, but I mean, there were multiple, you know, huge hits. Like, did you have the confidence that that would happen from the start of taking on that role? Um, I didn't have nervousness. Uh, taking it on. I, I wanted to be a studio executive at some point, and I felt like it might not be happening because I was so deep in the world of film producing, which was fine. I mean, there's so many of my heroes were film producers their entire careers. And I just felt like I wanted to see what that was like. And I did have a, a one, another mentor who told me, who was a great producer, he produced the movie The Graduate, 
but he regretted not ever taking the studio job. And so when I came in, I enjoyed overseeing a slate of films rather than one or two movies at a time. But I wasn't nervous about whether it was going to succeed or fail, mostly because um, it was such a failure of a company that in the past 20 years that anything that happened would have been a huge home run. And secondly, because I, um, I, I really felt like it was a, kind of more of an adjunct of producing and I was enjoying the filmmaking so much uh, when I was involved. I mean, I got to make a James Bond film immediately. Um, we had made The Hobbit immediately and was putting together films with directors that we loved that, so that it was, it was, I was enjoying just the access that this job gave me so much so that I wasn't even thinking, are, are we going to succeed or fail? And next thing I knew, we were the first studio to have $2 billion grossing movies in the same year. And so when that happened, it was sort of like, okay, we're set. In fact, I only thought, we went in thinking we would do the job for three years and then turn the studio around, sell it. Um, or the equity firm would have sold it that had it. And we ended up lasting a very, you know, eight, I lasted eight years in the job. Um, Gary, who came in with me, lasted five years in the job or six years in the job. But we were there much longer than anybody had thought. In fact, in, until from 1940 onwards, there wasn't a studio president who lasted as long as I did in that job. So it was a long nice. time. You survived the... Uh the private equity game and the the Hollywood critics. So I don't know if I survived it, but I, I certainly endured it well, for you're, a long time. You're still you're still standing and you're still making movies. Yeah. So um, this is a question that was put in the chat, but by Paul uh, Thomas Young. But I want to reinstate it. I mean, how cool is it working on the James Bond movies? Was it like were you on set and like doing these explosions and stuff? Like uh, were you good friends <laughs> fact, with I'll Daniel Gray? Were you were you friends with him? Good friends with him. Was I friends with him? Yeah. I don't know if it's friends with him. I know him and I certainly had some good times with him and we had a couple of disagreements over the years also. Um, but uh, I like him a lot. He's an incredibly hard worker and he's a great person. Um, but uh, it, was, it, was, it was a dream. I mean, I saw my first James Bond movie. I grew up in Wichita, Kansas when I was seven or eight years old at a theater in Wichita. And I still remember the feeling I had walking out of that movie. So I'm a giant fan of the franchise. I get to work with the producers of that franchise. It's a family owned company that produces it. So they're amazing. Uh, it's the Broccoli family. Um, Barbara Broccoli and her half-brother Michael Wilson. And so they're incredible entrepreneurs. And then the first movie I got to make was with a spectacular director, um, Sam Mendes, which was Skyfall. And in that movie, we got to create a new Q, a new Money Penny, a new M. We had all of these great tools uh, that we got to work with. And the, of course, put in one of the best James Bond songs with Adele. And so it was incredible. Now, in terms of explosions, I don't even think I've ever told anybody this story, but the last film was uh, No Time to Die. Um, I was on set in the 007 stage, which is the big stage where most of the major stunts are, and uh, most of the major sets are, I should say. And there was an explosion for kind of a second unit of explosion. None of the main actors were there. And I was there just hanging out with the director, this guy, Kerry Fukunaga. And the producers weren't there because they were there for another meeting. 
on another place. And so I was sitting there next to the director, the explosion happened. And it was like, I don't know if you guys know the old uh, stereo commercial where like a wave of sound goes over somebody. It was like, my hair went back, everything went back and it blew out the sides of the soundstage. Um, and it was, it went off too successfully. Nobody, somebody was a little bit hurt um, just because a piece of the siding of the building um, fell onto the of them, but they were okay. But it literally blew was it, the Was this in LA? Off. Was this in LA? Oh, this is in London. This is in London. Okay. Um, there's a lot of controversy over who the next Bond is going to be. Do you know? Do you know who it is? Do you know who it's going to be? And who would you want it to be? Out of Tom Hardy, James Norton, Idris Elba, they seem to be the top contenders. Who do you th- who do you think it's um, going to be? Do you have an inkling? I don't know who it's going to be. I was going to make some joke that it was going to be. Um, Juwan Howard, but it is, um, we don't know who it's, uh, I don't know who it's gonna be. They would never share that. They're not gonna talk about the next James Bond. The recording has stopped. This okay. one comes out. I'll put that back. This on. meeting is being recorded. Um, okay, that's good information. So there's a question in the audience. What is your advice, but from Anna, what is your advice for recent grads trying to break into the industry, you know, in today's, you know, climate? Um, well, first of all, um, I don't, how old are the kids in this? Are they undergraduates? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're all undergrads, most of us. If, if at all possible, get to Los Angeles and, and do an internship there. Um, I think that's critical because A, you'll get a sense of whether or not you want to be in the business and you'll make connections with the people that you work with that will be valuable one thing about this business is it really is a relationship-driven business, and one relationship will turn into 10 more relationships, will turn into 50 more relationships. And I think it's really important to come out here, especially as an undergrad, as an intern, when the stakes aren't so high that you, the, the internship needs to lead to a job next year, but is an opportunity for you to learn about it. And so I definitely recommend, if possible, coming out here and doing that. And then... Um, there are certain jobs that lend themselves to, you know, on entry points, even if you want to be a writer or a director or whatever, um, which is the mailroom at an agency. Um, it just gives you a big overview of the business because you're interfacing with a lot of agents. You're doing grunt work for them, but also you're in a class when that happens and you come in with 10 or 15 people that are doing the same thing you're doing at the same time. And that will be your peer group as you you know, progress in the business, which is very valuable also. Mm-hmm. So you, you started your own business, um, Glickmania. Obviously, the, the name uh, lends itself to your own last name. Um, I mean, you started like a company within Hollywood. Um, you're an entrepreneur. Um, yeah. And you've, you've uh, lined up a film already with your production company. I mean, did it feel like you were starting from scratch? I mean, I know your rep- your reputation in Hollywood precedes you, um, but did you feel like a startup again, like trying to get like a team going and like, did it did it feel like, you know, you were coming from a startup perspective rather than from like a, a, a perspective of already having yourself a lot of platform? Um, yes, for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, we actually have two movies coming out this year, and then we're probably going to make three movies this year So, in a TV show. So we've started off extremely strong, which is great. Um, but I think that 
two things. Number one, I was in the movie business, the movie, uh, making movies to be released in theater, theatrical release movie business, my entire career. And at MGM, it wasn't even, I could make a movie that could be released here, like an art film and a few theaters and then kind of go wide. The movies I was making had to be released the same weekend in the United States, Brazil, Russia, Japan, UK, whatever, close enough to each other, worldwide big releases. That was the MGM plan when I was there. And so I wanted to be in different types of storytelling. So as much as I want to be in the film and TV business, and as much as I know that's where the bread and butter is for me, because that's what I'm known for, or that's what my experience is, and that's what my relationships are, I want to be in different types of businesses that are storytelling also, specifically non-theatrical release movies, because as much as I love going to the theater, I think we all have a sense that that has been curtailed slightly. I have a movie that's going to go to Netflix this fall, uh, be made at Netflix this fall, um, and I have Creed Part 3, which is going to go this fall, but one will be theatrical and one will be for Netflix. You retained Creed? And then I have you retained Creed for Pardon? your own company. You retained I'm a Creed for your own. I don't own them. Oh, okay. So you you like stayed producing from the for after leaving MGM on that? Yeah, I get I'm okay. producing the movie. So um, but the um and we're doing a and I'm doing a Wednesday Adams TV show that Tim Burton is going to direct for Netflix. So I'm getting to spread out a little bit there. But more importantly for me as an entrepreneur is that I know that the producers that have the most power and authority are the ones that own the underlying rights to what they're working on. It's very rare for those people to exist. Usually you go to a studio and you say, here's a script or here's an idea. And then the studio buys it and then they own the underlying rights forever. Um, what I've done is I started this podcast company, um, which is a joint venture with iHeartRadio that produces podcasts that are original, that feature original music. Um, and then I'm going to do this joint venture with a comic book company. And I'm interested in those businesses and I'm interested in those uh, ideas working on those platforms as just the platform. But also what's attractive about it to me is that I own the derivative rights to all of those so that if I make a podcast and if it's a good idea for a TV show or a movie or a live stage show or whatever down the line, I will own the underlying rights. I will license those rights to a studio instead of having to sell those rights to a studio. And so, for example, the Broccoli's own the James Bond rights. And so MGM is the, gets the right to release them, and they're very lucky to have the right to release them. But at the end of the day, Barbara Broccoli and her half-brother own those rights. They get to choose when they're making a movie, who they're making a movie with, what type of merchandise deals they're going to make, and so on. Irwin Winkler owns half of the Rocky rights. Same thing with them. So when you're that, that this, these two prongs, the podcast and the comic book company are giving me an opportunity to create content that I can own. And what I would say is because of the pandemic and because of the opportunity that I sort of hit the ground running when a lot of people were like, whoa, and I didn't have a big overhead and I could sort of just figure out what I could do. I took advantage of that time and set up those two worlds so that when the business gets back to full, you know, fledged going, I will have, you know, basically a company that's an IP generator, not just a movie and television production company. That's so genius. Looking at it from an IP perspective, it's a, uh... It's brilliant. You're you're becoming an owner of of this stuff instead of just the like you know creating creating the content off the right. So it's it's brilliant. Um, 
Hollywood, are things ramping up again? Are is it way back in full swing? Or are we still seeing a lull? I mean, pretty you know, one one. It's back in. It's really back in. A lot is. I mean, it's very um, strange the way these productions are going because of all the COVID protocols, and there's a lot of costs that go against the COVID protocols. Not just money you have to pay for COVID insurance, but the cost that is in, in you know inherent in making a movie during the COVID times, more caterers, more crew, more all that, potential shutdowns if somebody gets, if there's a flare up. So that's still going on and that's making movies extremely difficult to make, but there's so much production activity right now. It's through the roof. We can't find enough work uh, available stages in Toronto to make the Wednesday Adams show there. We're probably gonna have to go somewhere else. Um, I've made a couple movies in Ireland over the years. Usually there's one movie, maybe one and a, you know, and, and a TV show there. There's at least four movies being shot in Ireland now. There's no stages available in Australia to shoot a movie. So basically there's a lot of backlogged production that's coming through, you know, happening right now, which is creating a log jam. And uh, so that's been a difficult thing to deal with. If you could like, you know, we're, we're past, you know, ending here, but if you could dispel like, one bit of mystique about this industry, like um, maybe is there a dark side to it? You know, it, it sounds very special. And like, I mean, you go to the Oscars, like you're friends with actors, like, but like, what's the dark side to it? Like, is, is there a dark side? Uh, I'm not, okay, I don't think that the, if, you, if you're in it for the glamour, which I know a lot of people are, there's definitely a dark side because with all of that um, glitz comes a crash and no one is in charge of giving you the opportunity to be involved in the glitz. And so without fail, it, you're going to have moments where you're not going to be invited to that party or you're not going to get invited or nominated for an Oscar and somebody else you know is, and that's going to fucking... Pardon me, I don't didn't mean to swear. That will kill you. And so you can't be in it for that exclusively or it will be incredibly damaging. I would say what the dark side is, it's actually more of a community than people think it is. And there's a lot of relationships people will build that are sincere, real friendships. But what I would say is the, the dark side of the business is that it is, there's no consistent um, workflow. I mean, you you can have a job for 10 years and then lose it and not be able to get yours only as good as your last work. So there's a lot of pressure to keep yourself going. And the careers in all aspects, acting, directing, being an executive, being an agent, any being a writer, they don't, they're, you know, it favors the youth more than it favors um, the experienced. And so that is something that you need to sort of know as you go in and try to keep yourself relevant and pay attention to things and watch movies. And there's a lot of great producers who are older, um, but it's definitely a business that chases the new and younger people know about the new more than, you know, older people do. Who is your favorite of the Hollywood crowd in terms of the, the well, more well-known, like who is your favorite celebrity that you've become friends with or seen at the parties and whatnot? Like, well, I, I won't say who my favorite is because there have a whatever. There's a lot of people that come and go. I would say that the nicest person and the hardest worker and the person I'm probably most proud of giving because I was involved in bringing him to Hollywood and giving him what was his dream of Hollywood success is Jackie Chan. 
Um, I think he is a uniquely special human being. I think he's an underrated filmmaker. I think he is an underrated actor. And he is so strong that uh, if you have a problem in a scene, he'll go away and figure it out and do 90% of the job that other people will do. But also, I remember in the first Rush Hour movie, at, towards the end, there's a big money drop that happens from the roof and like, whatever, $10 million fall from the sky. And so after every take, you had to clean up the dollars and do another one. And they weren't real dollars. Uh, otherwise, everybody would be doing it. But Jackie was there with the prop crew cleaning up the dollars. Like, he does everything. And so I have more admiration for him, I would say, than anybody else in the business in terms of work ethic, decency, and talent. Very awesome, very awesome. Well, uh, John, we don't want to take uh, much more of your time here. I know it's, uh, you know, it's been a, probably a busy week and you got some crazy projects coming up and I'm excited about Respect, uh, another film you're working on that I don't think you mentioned yeah. about Aretha Franklin, yeah. which is going to be a crazy one. Um, yeah. I also didn't note the fact that during your career, you hired like a good percentage of like female directors. Um, yeah. Maybe you could speak one last time to like the importance of diversity. Um, I think it's, you know, I, we were hiring female directors at a astronomically higher percentage than the industry average. I can say it was not because we were, had some sort of quota insights and we have to do this. They were the right directors for the movies. Um, but I am definitely cognizant of the audience not being, you know, a bunch of 40 year old white dudes. And so you need to make people want to see movies that feature faces like their own. And more importantly, they want to hear voice, not more, but is equally important. They want to have the voices be people that represent them who are telling those stories. And so uh, it's smart business and it's also the right thing to do. But I don't think it would be taking off in Hollywood if it wasn't smart business also. And, um, you know, you can, there's so many great emerging voices. The winner of the best directing Oscar will probably be a Chinese female uh, this year. And it just shows you that um, how much the business has changed. I don't even think people would have thought that was possible 15 years ago. Absolutely. So one last question is, can you kind of walk us through the day in the life of a Hollywood producer, director, entrepreneur? What does it look like? Well, it's different for, for me. It basically is, uh, and it's again, weird. I've been working in an office the whole time because I have a lot of windows and I haven't been is you know, in this office and a stuffy room with a bunch of people around. So I haven't had that big of a difference in the COVID world. So what I would say is, you, you know, pre-COVID, pre-COVID. Unfortunately, oh, even pre or post, you wake up and unfortunately you kind of think of, okay, what could go wrong today? And you deal with preemptively solving those issues. So if you're making a movie, reading the scripts, pages, checking in with them, especially if it's overseas, that's when I was making James Bond films every morning, they were basically halfway through their shooting day. So if there was a problem, I would know it the second I woke up. Um, in fact, this is, you know, a, a big piece of advice that I would give is don't look at your phone the first thing you wake up. It doesn't matter if you're in the business or you're just hanging out and taking classes. Give yourselves 10 or 15 minutes to like not look at it, chill out, and then look at it because 
I found that the second I would look at the phone and see if there was an issue, that would affect my temperament for the entire day. Do you, so, do you still check your phone um, when you wake up first thing? No, I don't anymore. So I actually meditate for 20 minutes before I even look at the phone. But um, then, then you obviously have some meetings. Being a producer instead of a studio executive, you have to be proactive and set those meetings. And if there's a movie you saw that you liked, call the agents for those people. And, you know, it's not an incoming call business. When I was at MGM, I'd get 120 or 150 calls a day. Now I get like 10 or 15 incoming, but I probably put it out. 20 or 30, um, but it is not um, as, um, it's not people asking you to say yes or no on things, it's you creating things. You put 20 and to 30 calls is, out per day? Oh yeah, minimum, and I'll probably 20 or 30 in also, both ways. But, um, but when you're a studio executive, you're just reacting to incoming calls. You don't make outcoding calls. And it becomes a thing at the end of the day that you feel like you didn't do anything productive, you just reacted. And uh, there's a famous studio executive who used to be a producer named John Calley, who was responsible for a lot of great movies. In fact, worked on a couple of Bond movies. And he said, you, the job of a studio executive is to worry constantly, go through sleepless nights, and then you hope when the movie comes out, you have a momentary sense of relief, if you're lucky. And then you go back to being miserable again. And I think that's true um, because all you're doing is fielding problems. And so this is much more proactive, reading, you know, making sure that um, you're in touch with um, agents that might have material and talent that you know, and checking in and creating things from the ground up. I mean, as much as I, I went to, you know, the reason why I became noticed by Joe Roth is because I was pitching movie ideas. I was saying, what if we do something like this? What if we do whatever? There was a Top Gun sequel that's coming out this summer. Top Gun was based on a guy who was a producer who was looking through a magazine when he was in a waiting room and there was an article about fighter pilots. And he said, this is a good idea for a movie. Somebody should do an idea for a movie. And so literally, 35 years after that, he looked at that magazine, there's a sequel to that movie coming out this year. So it has to be generated from someone. And that's what I focus my day on. Thank you so much for your time, uh, John. It was incredible to hear all of these stories. And uh, I was so excited about this. It's just such a pleasure to have even a fraction of your time um, with everything that you, you've done. So uh, definitely a virtual round of applause right there. And um, yeah, awesome. thank you very much. Go blue, guys. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to our future and hearing from John Glickman, founder and CEO of Glickmania, for an incredible conversation about the mystical world of Hollywood, really pulling back the curtain, telling us so much, spending so much time with us, such a legend. I'd like to ask you guys to please leave our future review at Apple Podcasts if this wasn't enough, bringing in this amazing Hollywood exec onto the pie for you guys to hear and pick the brain of it. We're on our way to 100 reviews. We're in the mid-70s. It would mean the world if you just took the time, listen 60 seconds to leave a little review about this podcast, five stars. And I hope you guys have a killer weekend. Remember to stay frosty. All right, peace out, everybody. Cheers. <laughs>